Welcome to the Craft to Career Podcast with Elizabeth Chapel, where every week we dive into how you can turn your craft into a successful career. Get ready to have the career you've always dreamed of. Hello and welcome to episode 28 of the Craft to Career Podcast. This is Elizabeth Chapel, your host of the show. And I am excited to start this week off with a review from Jesse Ross Quilts. Jesse says, I recently switched jobs and am back on the commute lifestyle after being home for the past year and a half. And this podcast has been my outlet for feeling like quilting is still part of my life every day, even if I don't have time to physically sew during the week. It has me daydreaming about leaving my current job and turning my craft into real income. Thank you, Jesse, for this review, and I hope that that works for you. I'm not sure what your full-time job is, but I hope that if you really want to turn quilting into a career and replace your job with that, that that can happen for you. And I will do my best to bring you tangible steps, know-how, insights into people who have done that so that you can do the exact same thing. So this week, I'm excited to have Christopher Thompson of The Tattooed Quilter. Christopher works for Riley Blake Designs, but he used to work for The Gap. And I remember meeting Christopher years ago when his very first fabric line came out. And a lot has happened in his career since that. And he dives into all of the things, everything that he does in his career, which is super fascinating and unique, and I cannot wait to introduce you. So with that said, let's jump in and meet Christopher. So we have Christopher Thompson here on the Craft a Career Show, and I met Christopher years ago at a quilt market. I think when you first started working with Riley Blake, do you, I don't, do you remember that? I'm putting you on the spot here. <laughs> I do. Yes. It was with Blue Carolina, right? Yeah. Okay. You do remember. I was like, he has to say yes, but <laughs> <laughs> so I'm curious for our listeners, can you tell us what you do right now? And then I want to jump back and hear your story from the beginning. Yes. So I am currently a year in already um, as the director of product marketing at Riley Blake Designs. So what does that entail? Tell me what that means. It's I'm the liaison between marketing and design. So I bridge the gap and help to bring fabric collections to life via copy, uh, via marketing campaigns, via product and notions, because I also help to develop new product and notions for our designers. And on the marketing side, I help um, coordinate any of our large campaigns. Um, for example, the designer uh, block challenge that we've done now for two years. Um, I work directly with our VP of marketing, Kelly, as well as our social media and blogger um, uh, team to bring that to life and coordinate between the designers and marketing and make sure everybody gets what they need. Um, so I'm kind of a jack of all trades, I guess, when it comes to uh, working at Riley Blake. I kind of have my hands in all the different buckets, which is awesome. I love it. It's how very, stay, very collaborative. Yeah. How do you stay organized? I'm hearing this in, in my brain. That's a nightmare. I'm like, oh my gosh, how do you do all of this? <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I used to be really good at notes on the computer, but I've learned to take notes um, in a notebook, you know, very old school, which is still a lot of people do. 
Um, and I adapted this from our VP of marketing, post-it notes. She loves a good post-it note. And so I picked that up and now I'm doing the same thing where it's just a quick reminder, hey, this is due. Hey, you need to work on this. Don't forget this. And as I sort of, you know, complete those tasks or follow up with anyone on the team, I just kind of, throw, you know, toss them away. It's, you know, you can get rid of it. Um, and then there's a lot of calendaring involved. And, um, you know, there's so many great tools online, um, so many great resources that you can use to kind of keep it going and keep your schedule organized. However, I learned that it needed to be very fluid. And so I did everything on by hand on a paper calendar because that way, if I'm in a meeting, I can just grab it and go talk to the team and say, okay, do we want to push this out? You know, should we move this forward kind of thing? And so I can just quickly erase it. And um, it's really helped. It's really helped me stay on track of things. Okay. So old school planner, you know what though? I've heard there's something about like writing it down with your own hands that helps the brain remember. I don't know if that's a thing, but we'll say it. It totally is. You know, and it's so funny because someone saw my handwriting the other day and they said, wow, your handwriting is so pretty. And I said, you know why? Because my mom made me practice and practice and practice. And I had to practice with my vocabulary words. Mm-hmm. So that's the that's how I could remember my vocabulary words was practicing my handwriting. <laughs> it works. It sticks. It does. Yes, it does. So I'm curious, like when I first met you, your first line came out with Riley Blake. And fast forward however many years, we won't say how many because that's aging us. But um, you're doing all these things for Riley Blake. How did that happen? I remember like you had some washi tape come out. I've got your cutting mat like what was the progression of that it was you know if we if we really go back to the very beginning um the tattooed quilter happened really out of jumping back into quilting you know I grew up in a quilting family and I paused you know through school and focused on my career and my education and when I moved to San Francisco, my boss at the time was a crafter and she said, Hey, we're doing this, you know, show at work for charity. You should make something. And I knew that I could sew, but it had been a long time. So I borrowed her sewing machine and made some pillows for the show and sold my pillows. And that's when I discovered this whole new world of quilting. You know, there were quilt bloggers that I didn't know existed you know, social media, Instagram had kind of just kicked off. And, and at the time I was sharing like what I ate and what I wore and, you know, my bike rides in San Francisco and stuff. So um, I really jumped back in and was like super impressed with this community that was so different than what I grew up with. And it was very modern and a whole new perspective and new tools. And, you know, it just really opened my eyes to loving quilting again. And so it started out as NYC Christopher, which was my Instagram handle at the time. And as I started to share more on social media, specifically Instagram, and even on my blog, I started to interact more with brands and interact more with other quilters. And it just kept growing by me putting myself out there. And um, I eventually changed it to the Tattooed Quilter. And that came about because my roommate at the time, she said, you need to have brand identity. And I said, you're right, I do. And I, but I didn't know what it was going to be. And she goes, well, you already have tattoos that are sewing related. You should call yourself the tattooed quilter. 
And I said, oh, you're so smart. Um, and uh, so we Googled it to make sure no one else had the tattooed quilter out there. And a friend of mine that I worked with at The Gap, she um, designed my logo. And uh, the rest is history because it it really just kept going. I, I, the, My biggest piece of advice for people is to continuously put yourself out there. It's so much work. And it's it's gotten harder because there's so many more aspects to it now. You know, when I algorithms weren't a thing on Instagram when the tattooed quilter started. And so now there's reels and videos and, you know, you have to constantly post and stories and links. And it's just a lot more than the organic beginnings of the tattooed quilter. And so I just always say to people, keep putting yourself out there. It takes a long time. And trust me, I had a lot of no's before I got to some yeses. And Riley Blake Designs came about because I um, met them at QuiltCon one year and I was impressed by um, how beautiful their little booth setup was. It was so colorful and just unique. And so I went over and I introduced myself to Cindy, the owner. And I was like, hi, I'm Christopher. You know, I'm helping the Modern Quilt Guild set up their booth. You know, I'm a quilter too. I've used your fabrics. Just wanted to introduce myself. And that's that's another piece of advice for people is don't be afraid to introduce yourselves. You know, when you're in the industry at an event like Quilt Market or Quilt Con or even Garden of Quilts that takes place here in Utah, go and introduce your pe- yourself to people in the industry. You know, shop owners, magazines, submit quilts to magazines. You're going to get no's, but you never know. You might get a yes. And that's how you can build these relationships and form these relationships. And so fast forward a little bit, I submitted um, some artwork to several brands in the industry and um, I got a few yeses and Riley Blake was one of them. And I remember the phone call with them. It was Cindy and the design director, Holly, and it felt like family. It felt like this really awesome collaborative environment that I wanted to be a part of. And um, because that's, you know, had been my career at the Gap, very collaborative, you know, everyone working together to achieve the same thing. And I said, you know, I'm going to sign with Riley Blake. It feels like family, feels like, you know, this is going to be a great thing. And so my first collection came out and a few more collections came out and I had the opportunity to design some notions for them. And, um, you know, what I loved is they were okay with my modern aesthetic of like black and white. That's very much the brand, the tattooed quilter. And um, so my cutting mat came out, washi tape. Um, And uh, now I have some canvas tote bags that are very chic and modern. And um, I have a pencil set and some notebooks as well. And um, yeah, it's just been really great. it's hard to believe how long that I've been there at Riley Blake as a designer and now a full-time employee. Yeah. So there's so many questions. So first of all, you mentioned you grew up in a family where quilting was there. So where did you grow up? Was it like the Midwest or? No, um, Southwest Virginia. Okay. So very, the, the mountainside of um, the state. Okay. And a very then, small town. Yeah. You got out of there quick. You moved to San Francisco. <laughs> A few places before I got to San Francisco, but yes. So what did you study in college and has it helped you? (laughs) Um, You know, uh, yeah, I would say it has. Um, In fact, I I did an alumni article 
uh, recently about how my degree in theater has helped me in the fashion industry. Um, because I think without that training of being in front of hundreds of people on stage, I probably wouldn't be as outgoing as I am now or as confident as I am to approach others um, to say, hey, let's work together. Oh, you don't want to work together? That's okay too. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's huge. So, and I guess if people are listening, just act it, you know, fake it. If you don't feel confident, just pretend that you are and go up to someone and, hey, blah, 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 whatever it might be, you know? Yep, I agree. And okay, then I knew you worked at the Gap, which I worked at the Gap in high school. I'm like, oh, we have this connection. But you were like, you know, I was on the sales floor as like a whatever. And you were head of what is it, marketing? No. So I actually started in the stores as well in college. Nice. Um, I was a seasonal sales associate. I took everybody's hours. If no one wanted to work, I would work them. And um, it was back when, I'm sure you remember this, we used to have contests for whoever could sell the the most sweaters or who could get the most gap cards. And I remember there becoming a job open on the corporate visual team in San Francisco. And I called from the store. And mind you, I'm probably 19 at the time. And I said, oh, I would love to, you know, apply for this visual job. And they said, ah, you need some more experience in visual. Well, that was my no to then trigger me going, okay, I need to get experience in visual. And so I left the gap for a minute and went into work at Macy's and I was on the visual team in Florida. Um, and fun fact, I worked at Disney. I was a game show host at Epcot for a no minute as well. Way. <laughs> I also did my intern to internship at Walt Disney World and um, the good old college program. <laughs> and um, I went from Macy's to working, to, working at a um, Southern department store called Belk. Um, or in the South, it's called Belks. Um, they also call JC Penny pennies. Um, but uh, and then I came back to the gap and I was a district visual manager. And um, there was a position open on the corporate team in San Francisco. And my boss at the time said they called and they would love for you to come out and interview for the job. And it was a really big deal because there were so many people that were interested in the position. And rightfully so. It's really cool and covetable and a lot of work, but covetable. And uh, so I went out for a week and literally they handed me a rack of clothes and they said, set up the fake store. And I was like, oh, okay. Um, And so I went to work and did it and got the job. And I think I had to move out there in two weeks. Um, And I was living in DC at the time. And so I moved to San Francisco and I was the manager of kids visual merchandising. So Gap Kids Visual Merchandising. And then there were some changes within the organization and they decided to move the visual team to New York City. And, you know, even with a degree in theater, I was like, I'm never going to live in New York City. You know, I, I, my, my, at the time, my career was focused on retail because I knew that's where I could make money. So um, myself and another coworker of mine got handpicked to move to New York City to be part of the visual team in New York. They brought together various uh, team members from across the globe. And we were the first um, global visual merchandising team. And I was still in kids and eventually got promoted. I moved into women's and was over the women's visual merchandising team. And then I got promoted to director. And then I was director over Gap Kids and Baby Gap. And then eventually um, got promoted to be the director of visual merchandising for all the sub brands, um, including Teen, which launched right before I left to move to Utah for Riley Blake Designs. 
Yeah. So, okay. I just have to ask, have you seen the new Cruella movie? Yes. Okay. This is reminding me where she goes in and like sets up the clothes and stuff. Was this like your job? It was, it was, it's, it's, um, some Jack, my partner always makes fun of me because sometimes when people say, Oh, what did you do at the gap? I'm like, I fold sweaters. That's what I did at the gap. Um, but no, very much like that. You know, my team was responsible for, styling in the windows, product placement. So if you walked into a store and, you know, sweaters were on a table, my team put those sweaters on that table. Um, and then as my career progressed, um, we started to work, and especially moving to New York, we worked more closely with the design team and helping them develop, you know, the product. And um, it was really cool. I, and I say, you know, jokingly, sometimes it's like the scene in The Devil Wears Prada where she's like, can you bring me a cerulean belt? And, you know, and that whole thing where she's like, oh, but this 12 people in this room helped you pick out that terrible sweater you're wearing. That's kind of what it was like. Um, and it was so cool because we were six to eight months ahead. So we would be working on Christmas and summer, and which is very similar to, to fabric, believe it or not. And um, it was really cool to then once, you know, that product landed in stores to then go and see like, oh yeah, look how, you know, everybody brought it to life. And it was really awesome. That is so cool. That would be such a fun job. So I am so curious how this moved. So I, I knew that you lived in New York. I just recently heard that you moved. I was like, because oh, I have reached out to you before, like, where should I go eat? What should I see? And you gave, you have some great recommendations. So I'm like selfishly really sad that you've moved, but how has this move been for you? Like personally, career-wise, all the things, it's a big transition. Yeah. So we moved, I guess, kind of toward the end of the pandemic. Um, and it was, the pandemic had some of, you know, had a lot to do with it. You know, we were sort of at this place, my partner and I were like, okay, well, what do we do? What's next? You know, and, and um, Riley Blake called and they said, we have this position, you know, we're interested in you for it. Um, is this something you would love to do? And without a doubt, I said, yes. Um, you know, because it was sort of the next piece in my career growth, you know, as a quilter and a designer was to work in the, in the industry somehow. And um, I said, yes. And we moved out here and it's been really good for me personally, because New York is so fast paced and there's always this hustle and you're always on. And I struggled a lot during the pandemic because we were working at home and we were visual merchandising stores through the computer, you know, and, you know, I had team members who, needed to learn Illustrator and InDesign. And, you know, we were, there was a whole new program that launched that, you know, the team had to learn and we didn't know how to cut it off. You know, we would work super late at night to get up early and do it again. And, you know, we would have meetings and stuff throughout the day. And it was just really hard on me um, mentally and physically. So moving here has been really nice because my work-life balance has changed. I'm able to go home and cut it off and enjoy my evening and sew and um, just really enjoy life. And it's very refreshing to not feel that immense pressure to, okay, what's next? Oh, we got to, oh, this table isn't a, you know, a, we got to move the sweaters around. You know, it doesn't feel like that craziness, which I, I miss it. There are definitely days when I miss it. Um, but I'm loving this time to just kind of be me again. 
Mm-hmm. It's awesome. And what does your partner do? How did that look for him to just be able to move? So he works on Broadway. Um, he is a dresser at the Lion King. He dresses Mufasa and Simba. No way. <laughs> yes. And uh, he has a master's in costume construction. And we actually just moved him back. Um, you know, we felt like it was the right decision to make for him and his career. Um, you know, that's what he knows, you know, Mm -hmm. his whole career so far has been some aspect of working on Broadway. You know, he worked for a milliner for a while, um, and he's made hats for Wicked. He's made hats for Bette Midler. He made some crazy hats that the Rockettes were going to wear that never made it into the production, but they were some crazy amount of money, um, and he's worked at Lion King now, gosh, five, six years. Okay. You know, he started out as a swing, which is kind of part-time work when needed. And now he's full-time. Um, and so we're like, Broadway's going back. You should go. You know, mm-hmm. you're you're still pretty young and we don't know what's going to happen. You should go and, you know, go back to work and do what you love. And it's been really awesome for him. I'm really Good. excited for him. So when does Broadway open up again? <laughs> So most of the major shows, so the Wicked's, the, you know, Phantom, Lion King, um, Chicago, those opened a few weeks ago. Oh, okay. um, I want to say the middle of September. Um, and I was there the weekend before the Lion King opened. So I got to see final dress rehearsal, which was really magical um, and emotional. I told him I was going to cry and I totally did cry when they started singing Circle of Life because you, you know, you think, oh gosh, you know, these, these actors, the crew, um, they were all out of work for a year and a half, you know, and some of them adapted to doing things on zoom and voiceover work and things like that. But, you know, my partner out of work for a year and a half Mm -hmm. and, um, you know, he tried, he tried really hard to, you know, find something new to do. And, and he was able to actually do a lot of sewing, which was great. Um, he makes the most beautiful caftans out of vintage fabric and button up shirts and things. So it's really, it was really great for us to be in Utah because we actually have a sewing room versus (laughs) New York. We were sewing in between the kitchen and the dining room. Um, here we actually have a sewing room. So he was able to spread out and, and to explore and do new things. And so it was really good for him as well. So looking back, what business decision was a big game changer for you finding success with this quilting career? I think for me, the biggest change was not focusing on the likes, the follows, um, the amount of people reading my blog. It was really that because you get so wrapped up in it. And I do still find my, I do still find myself like, oh, I'm not doing enough. I'm not doing enough. I'm not sharing enough. But it started to affect my work. And so that ability to step away from that and go, just make and do what you need to do is great. You know, no one, it's not going anywhere. And I think the other thing for me that was a a game changer was saying no. And that's really hard because you want to say yes to everyone and help everyone And there came a time when I had to say no to someone who wanted to do something for, wanted me to do something for free versus like someone who was actually going to pay me. 
and that's hard because sometimes that's friends and you know you're you're like oh yeah I would love to do your book review but uh, I have this project that's actually paying me and I need to focus on that and I think we have to be okay with telling ourselves it's okay you're not going to lose that relationship they're going to understand because they're also selling something yeah and so I think saying no and reprioritizing your energy when you get into this place of you're not doing enough. You yeah. Know? So I'm curious to dive into that. So we recently had the whole outage with Facebook and Instagram for a day, which was very refreshing if we're being honest for me, but yep. it really made me think a lot. And I just, I've been trying to focus on this too. And I feel like somewhat of a hypocrite because I'm like, it doesn't matter how many followers you have. And people who have zero followers are like, well, that's easy for you to say, you know, and not that I have like a bajillion, but you know, so, but with that said, I've seen people who have a lot of followers who aren't earning money there. It's more of like popularity over profit. And, and then I see, I don't know. So for you, like, was there a correlation with how many followers you had to how much you were earning or I don't know. I just kind of want to dive into that a bit. No, um, never, honestly, never, because my revenue streams are so different than other designers. And like, I'm not a quilt, quilt pattern writer, you know, I always say I can't do math, but I can make it look good. That's always <laughs> been my motto. Um, and not that I couldn't design a quilt pattern and I have a few out there, but I don't have the bandwidth with a full-time job to answer questions or customer service. And so I had to take that piece away from my revenue stream and focus solely on blog posts, like paid blog posts and partnerships, Instagram paid posts, or through like fabric design. Um, at one point there was a book in the works that, you know, didn't happen, but that would have been another revenue stream as well as teaching. Um, and someone years and years ago told me that those are sort of the, that's the magical formula is teaching and patterns and book and fabric, because you're not going to make a million dollars off of fabric or books or yeah. pat. I mean, maybe, maybe patterns if you have a lot, you know, a lot, a large library, but um it, that was where my head was at. It was never, oh, I have to have 100,000 followers to be famous and be popular and make thousands of dollars. No, mm-hmm. it was really old school for me. Like this is, this is the journey I'm going to take. And I still think that way. Yeah. So teaching, did you travel to guilds or what? That, that's totally foreign to me. So tell me more about teaching. What do you do for that? So my first big teaching uh, gig was at QuiltCon. Um, several years ago, I want to say maybe the third year of QuiltCon. Um, and I think I taught two years back to back. And then most recently I've taught, um, at Garden of Quilts, which is here in Utah, which is beautiful. Quilts hanging in a garden is just (laughs) ah, so dreamy. Um, and, um, I have presented, uh, like a trunk show, um, online, zoom to guilds and um i've also worked with american quilt retailer um and have done some visual merchandising classes for quilt shops and online retailers um tips and tricks kind of thing um and that's really my you know breadth of teaching okay 
And that was successful for you? I guess if it's like me, it's a little mixture of all the things. So not one of the things is like, well, you know, but it's all the things. Yeah. And I would say what helped me was going into it with, uh, you know, especially guilds going into it already knowing what I want to get from it. Like, you know, have a contract, have your, you know, say, okay, I, you know, I need a deposit to guarantee the date and, you know, have all of that ready to go, um, you know, and so that you're not, you know, kind of going into it blind. They know what you expect and you're going to know what they expect as well. Um, teaching as far as something big like quilt con or garden of quilts, um, those kind of gigs will often come to you with a price, you know, or if they'll, what they're going to pay you. And um, I always say there's, there's room for negotiation, negotiation. I like you know? it. And, you know, do, you know, it doesn't hurt, you know, just put it out there and see what happens. Um, I haven't ha- luckily I haven't had to say, Oh, I need, you know, more. Um, yeah. Just be prepared to, you know, you're going to get a contract from them and it's going to say X amount and, you know, you can say yes or no. Um, the other thing that I think is a great resource for revenue is magazines. Um, you know, magazines are all always looking for submissions. And, um, you know, again, it's, it's just put yourself out there. I wish that I had time to do more magazine submissions, but I just can't. And I, I'm always like a day late um, for a deadline. Um, but, um, that's another great resource for, you know, revenue. Yeah. And I'm going to throw it in there. Subscription boxes. I used to do one, but I was recently featured in one. It's great pay. And I have a membership. If someone's looking and has a great pattern, throw it out there. Cause you know, there's people, there are lots of different subscription boxes out there and magazines and those kinds of things where you can earn great money quickly. So and you don't have to have a ton of followers to submit to a magazine. You're right. You are right. You're absolutely right. And it adds a ton of credibility to your resume, if you will. So, yeah. So what's one of your favorite things about having a quilting career? And did you ever imagine that this would be your job? <laughs> no, I mean, um, I thought that I would be, you know, I was at the Gap for over 15 years, you know, almost, yeah, almost 20 years. And, um, I just thought that I would retire from the gap, but, uh, yeah, I, I didn't, I didn't think that I would ever have a quilting career or, you know, a quilting career or work in the industry full time. Um, but it's been humbling because, you know, my family were, my family was all quilters, you know, they were all quilters and seamstresses and, you know, my cousins now have, and second cousins and whatnot have picked up um, and have been carrying on the family tradition. And so a part of me feels blessed to be able to, you know, um, carry that legacy on. And, um, you know, I hope that I know my grandmother and my great grandmother are looking down going, heck yeah, you know, this is awesome. And I would be curious to know what they would think because my first quilt was a mini quilt and they called it a wall hanging. So I'm pretty sure they'd probably still call everything that I make wall hangings, but who knows? Oh, that's awesome. I'm curious how many people are in the quilting career who like set out to have that as their career, you know? And when I meet people, tell me this, I'm curious about this. When I meet people and they ask what I do, I'm like, um, I write quilt patterns. I mean, I guess yours is a little more tangible, but is it ever weird to you? Like I, what do you tell people when they ask what you do? Well, the number one thing is my tattoo. They see my scissor tattoo and it's automatically, you cut hair? (laughs) 
<laughs> and I could see where they think that, um, you know, a gay guy with a pair of scissors. Yes, works in the salon. Stereo- stereotypical. Um, but I, say, I reply and I say, oh, no, they're fabric scissors. Fabric scissors? And I'm like, yeah, they're for quilting. You know, I, I quilt. Uh, what? And I say, oh, I'm a quilter. Um, not in the way that you're thinking. Um, in a different way. You know, same kind of, you know, process but in a different way than probably what you're imagining so um yeah it's it's awkward (laughs) yeah we should have a big gathering and just go around the room and ask around what do you do for a job just to see all these professional quilting people how they handle that because it is yeah and yeah anyhow um so okay I teach this course on how to write and sell quilt patterns and it's like all girls and this year I have a guy in the class And I'm so excited. And there's not a lot of guys in the quilting community. And I feel like if you are, that's kind of an advantage. Is that fair of me to say, tell me if this is like, oh, you can't say that, but tell me your thoughts on this. Um, No, it's definitely sticky for me um, because I heard when I started to gain some traction in the industry and build my name, you're a guy everything's going to be handed to you. And I understand that, you know, I understand that perspective. And, and I, 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 yeah, it's tough because um, I do feel like women in most industries, frankly, all industries are second to men when it comes to pay fairness, when it comes to any sort of promotion or benefits or, you know, equal, anything equal. I always feel like, you know, it's second. The one thing that I loved about working at The Gap was women were leaders. The majority of the company was women. Mm-hmm. And that was amazing. Yeah. And, you know, even Riley Blake, a lot of women, you know, even designer pool, it's, it's all women. You know, there's a couple of men, but it's all women, which I think is, is awesome. Um, And I feel a little awkward talking about this because I don't want people to get the wrong impression or to feel like I'm mansplaining or anything like that or trying to boast anything. But I worked really hard, you know, at putting myself out there. And like I said, there were a lot of no's. Mm -hmm. And then there were the yeses that really took off. But it's a it was a lot of work for me. Um, So it's been one of those things where I feel like I'm right beside other, you know, people in the industry, women working along them saying, okay, yeah, like, let's go and do like, oh, you're putting your, okay, let's try this. And that's what I've loved about being a baby lock ambassador is when everybody gets together, it's about sharing ideas and ways that we can all help each other advance or what you do as a best practice, what I do as a best practice. And so it just feels like this share of knowledge that has been really good, especially through baby lock and even Riley Blake with the designers, when the designers not, you know, when we all get together, like a garden of quilts, we're like, Oh, we should do this. Or what if we did this next year? Or should we do this at quilt market? Or, you know, it's this, it's never, it's, I never felt like it was about our genders. It was about the common good for all of us. I like that. And I thought, you know, and that's, I love that because I feel like it's so easy now for us on, especially through social media, to just put everybody down. You know, you can easily, attack someone and put them down. And, but a friend of mine years and years and years ago said to me, she goes, there's room for everyone in quilting. Yep. You know, there's room for everyone to be successful. 
And there is, you know, you don't have to have a big business to be successful. You can have a small niche business and be successful and be happy and not be stressed out and, and just really go for it. And then maybe change gears and try something new or introduce something new. And, um, but yeah, I do feel like they're not, they're definitely not a, a ton of men in the industry. There are more so now than when I started the tattooed quilter, they're definitely more now. And I feel like the pandemic really brought out a lot of new quilters and quilt designers and, and, um, you know, illustrators and, and surface designers and things. So that's exciting. And I've definitely seen some new men on Instagram sharing their quilts and their quilt patterns, which I think is really cool. Um, bless you. I cannot write a pattern. So good for you. You, you already have the advantage over me. Well, and um, I just like to normalize sewing for men. You have, I don't want, you know, I watched, this is so random, but we watched a dating show in Japan where these people all came to a house and a guy came in and had a sewing machine and no one blinked an eye. I was like, I feel like, and maybe again, this is me being generalized. I don't know, but if you were to go on the bachelor and a guy brought in a sewing machine, it'd be like, what, you know? And so if we can normalize this a little bit and maybe this is too big of a battle, but anyways, going back to there's room for everyone and focusing on our commonalities, focusing on the things we have in common rather than dividing. And so maybe that's something that I can work on as well. It's like, instead of saying, Oh, this and this just let's, we're, we're sewers, we're creators, you know? And so I really like that. Look at that. And honestly, my baby lock journey machine is a beast. It's a big machine and it's heavy. It's heavy. So I'm like, I like even me taking it up and down off the table. Sometimes I'm like, this, this is a workout. This is a big piece of machinery. This is like a tractor in the field. I'm like, this, this, so I'm like, come on. (laughs) <laughs> which I'm excited. So I do the baby lock with you. And this year it was all via zoom, but I'm really hoping for this, that in person thing, there is something magical about being in the same room with people and like collaborating and thinking. So I'm going to keep my fingers crossed that that happens next year, along with everything else. But I would say some of my best conversations about business have been when we leave an event and we're going into our hotel and everybody's like, okay, good night. Hey, um, so I noticed on your blog, you did this. How did you do that? I, I can't figure it out. And then we're like standing there next to the ice machine, you know, having these deep conversations about our businesses or, you know, even at Quilt Market, everybody's like, okay, good night. Oh, it was so fun to see you at dinner. You're walking back to the hotel. By the way, how did you do that video on Instagram? out you know and those have been some of the best conversations and then everybody sits down and we're all starting to share it's it's great and I think it it goes back to when you think about the very beginnings of quilting and you know people were doing it um you know as a hobby and a way for you know everyone to get together women to get together it was a pastime and even when I think about my grandmother my great-grandmother they were sitting around wooden, wooden quilting frames talking about everything. I'm sure they were talking about my grandfather and my great-grandfather, but, <laughs> um, you know, it was a way for them to come together and share. And um, quilting, I think that's even, you know, retail. Yeah, I mean, you could share in retail, but I think in quilting, there's more of this sense of community. Which for is sure. And feeling like you're a part of history, that this is tied to our roots, no matter where you come from, that that's a part of our 
the world's history, which is a very cool thing to be connected to. I like that. And I, I think one last thing I'll say about being a male is uh, in the quilting industry is I have tried my best to remove my gender from it in the sense of, you know, I don't, maybe in the very beginning, early on the tattooed quilter, I would, I would hashtag it male quilter. I don't, I don't do that now um, because I want people to see my work not for me. You know what I mean? Like, I don't want someone to be like, oh, Chris, the guy quilter. Yeah. You know, and so I just want people to say, oh yeah, that's a tattooed quilter, you know, quilt, or that's a tattooed quilter cutting mat, or that's Christopher's cutting mat. Like, I don't want there to be my gender or my sexual orientation attached to it because I don't think it's necessary. Well, ideally that's, we can get to that place in the world with everything, you know, where we can just and acknowledge the fact that there's differences, but just let that kind of be a thing that's, of you know, that the work and who we are and how we treat people and yay, we're, we're doing this. <laughs> we're making a difference. Yeah. This conversation alone is a great thing to just put it out there, you know, and start talking about it that way. So I really like that. Okay. All right. We're going to jump into the rapid fire questions. <laughs> hey, let's do it. Okay. If you, okay, so we've got some rapid fire questions. I'm going to do my best to just do rapid fire. If you could see any play or musical tomorrow, what would it be? The Music Man. Oh, nice. Okay. What is your favorite meal? I eat like a six-year-old, so uh, chicken nuggets and french fries. <laughs> awesome. Okay. Introvert or extrovert? Oh, extrovert. Oh, really? Okay, I think you might be the first extrovert that I've interviewed. Okay, very cool. It's probably because I'm a Leo. You're, oh, okay. Oh, yeah. Very cool. All right, New York City or Salt Lake City? Oh, man. Um, uh, <laughs> Palm Springs? <laughs> very diplomatic, Okay. <laughs> Okay, favorite swig drink, or you mentioned these new drink places in Utah. What is it? Yes, so um, soda shops are um, like coffee shops here in Salt Lake City, and I love a Diet Coke, Um, and so my partner and I have tried pretty much all of the soda shops here in Salt Lake City. You drive through, you can get you know, anything from a Diet Coke to a Diet Coke with coconut and lime if you wanted it. You know, there's just, they're mixed soda drinks. Um, so my favorite place is Thirst. Um, and uh, I just get a Diet Coke with ice and it's Pebble Ice, which is also my favorite. So, okay. and they go up to a size 44. So if you're really filling yourself that day, you can get a 44 ounce, which is probably basically a two liter. <laughs> so, okay. I like Diet Coke as well. I have to preface with this. I saw an ad on TV yesterday from Coca-Cola and it showed some people drinking Diet Coke and they're like, we know you young people think Diet Coke is for old people. I was like, I'm sorry, what? (laughs) I did not know that that was like the marketing information coming out right now is that Diet Coke is for older people. So does that make us old? I was like, what? (laughs) No, I've been drinking Diet Coke since I was in my 20s. So no. Yeah, thank you. Okay, and last, what is your favorite color? Oh, blue. Okay, yes. And your dog. Pink is probably a close second. But you also have the black and white thing going on. I do, yeah. That's more branding. That's more branding. Okay, okay. It's very much like also like um, 
when people see my fabric designs, I mean, that's so different than the tattooed quilter as well, because my fabric designs tend to be more romantic and floral and feminine. Um, I'm like an onion, you know, at like <laughs> Texas Roadhouse, just pull back those, you know, fried layers. Uh, um, but you're asking about my dogs. Dog. Yeah, oh, dogs. Okay, plural. Yes, yes, dogs. So two French bulldogs, Edie's the oldest um, and uh, Edna is the youngest. Okay, because I one of them or both of them made an appearance in your fabric, right? Yes, Edie did in my first collection. Okay. That's right. Yeah. Very cool. Well, thank you so much for being here, for opening up, telling us about your story and all about the tattooed quilter. Awesome. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much, Christopher, for being a guest on the Craft to Career podcast. I absolutely loved chatting with him and hearing more about his awesome quilting career. If you enjoyed this week's episode, go ahead and take a screenshot and share it on social media and tag Christopher of the Tattooed Quilter. Give him a shout out. Let him know how much you enjoyed hearing his story and him being open and vulnerable and sharing all the things. Also, if you're enjoying the show, go ahead and rate the show, leave a review. I love to share the reviews each week of the listeners, and I will give you a shout out if you leave your name or your Instagram handle. I hope you have a wonderful week, and I will see you back here next week on the Craft to Career podcast. Mm-hmm.